Well, good morning to each one and greetings in Jesus' name. Thank you, Josh, for that passage from Ephesians chapter 6. That's a very important passage as we think about the doctrine of non-resistance because it makes it clear that new covenant Christians are still commanded to fight. But it's different, not against flesh and blood, but against the list there in verse 12. Josh brought that out. And so we must stand and we must fight, but it's not against flesh and blood. This morning I want to continue with the study of the doctrine of non-resistance. Today we will be looking at New Testament principles for non-resistance. In a message several weeks ago, we considered Old Testament foundations for non-resistance. And so to refresh our memory, I thought I would begin with a bit of review. In the Old Testament foundation message, we first considered the sovereignty of God. Understanding that God is sovereign in all his ways is the first step in understanding the doctrine of non-resistance. Seeing God's sovereignty is key to understanding his ways. Being sovereign, God is bound to no one but himself. He may do as he commands, set up and put down, give life and take life. God is free in a way beyond our poor mortal comprehension. He is the most high God whose power and wisdom and authority have not one limitation or lack of restraint. This is the God who commanded Old Testament Israel to kill and commands the New Testament church to avenge not. In that message, second, we considered the sanctity of human life. Human life is sacred because it bears the likeness of God. The sixth of the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not kill, which forbids murder. However, this commandment did not forbid killing and God directed Old Testament warfare. However, God has never given man the freedom to randomly kill others. The consequences for doing so were always painfully high. We talked about Cain, Moses, David, all paid a high price for killing others, for murdering others. And then third in that message, we considered warfare in the Old Testament. Israel, we said, was a civil nation. Neither the Old Testament or the New Testament makes non-resistance a civil ethic or a civil requirement. Non-resistance is a doctrine that only finds expression in the Church of Jesus Christ. We looked at the seriousness of Old Testament warfare. When God gave the Old Testament saints the command to kill, they were expected to follow the command to the letter of the law. And so killing God-ordained warfare in the Old Testament was serious business. And then last, we looked at how New Testament, I'm sorry, and then last, we looked at how non-resistance was typified in the Old Testament. Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. 
and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. We talked about several men and even people in the Old Testament who responded to situations in life in a non-resistant New Testament way. In Genesis 26, we have the story of Isaac digging the wells. In Genesis 45, we have the story of Joseph forgiving his brethren, his brothers. And then we talked about the tribe of Levi. The Levites were a special tribe of God's own, even among the Jews. The Levites were in charge of caring for the things of the tabernacle. They did not go to war. And so today we want to continue our study with New Testament principles for non-resistance. And so I have four points that I want to consider today. I'm trying to turn my fan on here and I'm not having a whole lot of luck there. I think it goes. So if you all can picture that, everything is normal here at Ebenezer. We got the fan on. Okay, so here we go. The first point I want to consider today is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As I said in the previous message, and again today, understanding God is sovereign is the first step in understanding the doctrine of non-resistance. Following on the heels of understanding that God is sovereign is understanding the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I want, to, I want you to hold that thought for just a moment. I'm going to go down a little bit of a bunny trail, but I'll be back to that thought in a few minutes. And what I share here in the next couple minutes, I hope you can understand. It may be a little deep for some of us, but my prayer is that everyone listening today can grasp at least some of these thoughts. And so pray for me that I can say it clearly and in a way that we all can understand. But we begin this study in the Old Testament and note at first that God the Father is sovereign. He is before all things, greater than all things, and over all things. In the Old Testament covenant, God revealed his law on Mount Sinai to the nation Israel, and immediately to them came the task of living by and enforcing the law. And so we look back at the civil nation of Israel with its bloody warfare and, and judicial system as a proper response to the justice of God revealed in the law. In the New Testament, however, we have the revelation of God taking on a dimension beyond that given in the law. God revealed himself in Jesus Christ as the God of infinite mercy. The revelation of mercy came by Jesus Christ. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, man could never have known God as the God of such infinite mercy without the revelation of the law. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor, I believe the old king says, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, 
that we might be justified by faith. Now, God did show mercy in Old Testament times. However, the law revealed most clearly God's justice. And Jesus Christ revealed most clearly God's mercy. Do you all get that? I hope so. And so the two cannot be separated. By the justice of God, we see the infancy of his mercy, and by his great sacrifice of love, we see the immutability of his justice, or unchanging of his justice. In God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, like it says in Psalm 85:10, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. It's quite romantic. And so, just as the people under the old covenant reflected the revelation of God by the law, so under the new covenant, God's people reflect the revelation of God by Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints operated by justice as the civil nation of Israel. Today, under the new covenant, we operate by mercy and love as the church of Jesus Christ. Old Testament warfare commanded by God was a window by which God disclosed something about himself. By it, all nations knew that the God of Israel was a God of justice and the God who hates sin. And likewise, New Testament non-resistance, also commanded by God, is a window by which he shows us more of who he is. By it, people know the mercy of God and the God who loves the sinner. Understanding the transition between the revelation of the law and the revelation of Jesus Christ is so important. And unfortunately, many Christians in our world today are confused on this very point. Many American Christians believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ. They happily celebrate Easter Sunday. They celebrate Christmas, but yet they still hold on to parts of the revelation of the law. They are involved in politics, support going to war. They try unsuccessfully to blend the two revelations. And this is nothing new. The, the, the disciples struggled with this very thing. The disciples struggled with the transition between the two revelations. In John 14, verse 1, we have the words of Jesus to the disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now think about it. The disciples were caught right in the middle. They believed in God, who revealed himself through the Old Testament law. Now Jesus is saying, believe also in me. Jesus then goes on and shares with the disciples all that is available to those who believe on him. Many mansions, the comforter, peace that he promised to leave. And so now we come back to the thought of the lordship 
of Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's look at several scriptures that confirm to us that Jesus is Lord. And I invite you to Hebrews chapter 1, and I will read 1 through 3. Hebrews 1 verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. So right there we have it. That's how it used to be. Verse 2, here it comes. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high. There we have it, how it was, the change, and how it is today. Beautiful. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I'll read 12 through 20. Colossians 1 verse 12. Beginning in verse 12. Here again, this passage shows us the progression, revelation of the law, revelation of Jesus Christ, and where we find ourselves today. Colossians 1 verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed unto us, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And notice verse 8, And he is the head of the body, the church that is us today, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having, been, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Beautiful passage. I believe it explains itself very well. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. As I thought of these two passages, I thought of the hymn, The Lord is King. Oh, praise his name, or all the earth his grace proclaim. From age to age, from day to day, his wonders grow more gloriously. And so the very first point today is understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I trust that, that you can understand that because it's a very important part of understanding New Testament non-resistance. And so let's move on to the second point and trust, 
Trust me, the next three points will not be drug out as long as the first one. But the next point is non-resistance in the Gospels. And I invite you to Matthew chapter 5, and today we'll read 38 through 48. There are many passages we could turn to in the Gospels, but for the sake of time, we will only look at one today. But here we have the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. As you probably notice, Jesus first points out the old covenant before he institutes the new. You have heard that it has been said, but now I tell you not to resist an evil person. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, and so on. The doctrine of non-resistance is not a passive doctrine. It's a doctrine of operative love. In other words, those who ill-treat you, hit you, take your stuff, sue you at the law, and otherwise despitefully use you, are to receive your love. Not just ignore them, but they are to feel something coming back from you. What a challenge. Now, imagine with me for a moment the thoughts of this old covenant crowd gathered around Jesus and hearing these words. What must have been their thoughts? (laughs) Wait a minute, how can this happen? Bless them. How could a righteous Israelite bless a Roman soldier? Do good to them? How could an Israelite in good conscience do good with sincerity to those who cursed and hated and persecuted the righteous? Pray for them. How could a true Jew pray for his enemies? I mean, our father, King David, he prayed for his enemies And he said, I hate them with a perfect hatred. What is Jesus saying? Well, folks, you know, and I know, there is only one way 
to do what Jesus taught. And that is by first becoming a child of the Father and making his son, Jesus Christ, Lord of our lives. This is the only way. Human reasoning, it makes, in our own human reasoning, it makes no sense. My third point for us to consider today is non-resistance in the early church. I don't know if you've thought about this before, you probably have, but the early church started out solely on the teachings of Jesus. That's all they had. The other portions of scripture that we enjoy all came later. The apostles went forth with a message to repent and be baptized. The early church believers lived by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Jesus was the center of the early church. I don't even think they had a discipline or an instruction book. They had the teachings of Jesus, and that's what they went with. When Jesus spoke of becoming his disciples, he spoke of leaving all and taking up the cross. After Jesus' death, the reality of taking up the cross became plain. The early believers purposed upon their confession of faith to identify in the suffering and shame for the one who had died for their sins. In doing so, they became the off-scouring of humanity. And if ever an age proved the power of the cross, the age of the early church surely did. They were harassed and tormented, but yet they grew. Chased and scattered, but yet they increased. Persecuted and killed, but yet they multiplied. It's been said the blood that flowed from the non-resistant Jesus Christ coursed its way through the veins of the church, and the more it spilled, the more people came to its cleansing. It's been said, too, and I believe there is no practice of the early church that was more responsible for the rapid growth than the willingness to identify with the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul later taught in wording almost parallel to Jesus' words of blessing enemies, doing good to those who hate, avenging not, rejoicing in tribulation. Let's look at a few of those passages. We're not going to exhaust this in any way today, but we'll look at Romans 12, 14 through 21. The words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, Verse 14, beginning in verse 14 through 21. It begins with, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regards for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here we have some good practical advice coming from the Apostle Paul. This morning, my message is not about the practical side of non-resistance. I plan to get there eventually in another message, but more just the principles of it. I find it interesting that these words, this teaching is coming from a man that before he knew Christ made havoc and slaughter. As a Pharisee under the old law, Paul felt fully justified in using force to accomplish right. However, after his experience on the Damascus Road, Paul laid aside the weapons of men, taught against them, and preached the message of the cross. When the Apostle Paul made the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that change was marked by his exchange of the sword for the cross. From that day, Paul faithfully taught non-resistance to both Jews and Gentiles alike, first with the example of Christ, and then second by his own example of putting down his own personal sword and taking up the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter is another example of one who laid down his own personal sword. Peter used a sword. Peter knew about a sword. He wasn't always the most accurate, (laughs) but uh, he had a sword. He swung it occasionally. But Peter, too, laid down his personal sword and took up the cross of Jesus. His writings, too, reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ. The fourth point I want to consider today It'll also be our last point for today, is separation of church and state. Many of the churches that came out of the Reformation time believed and taught separation of church and state. They taught the concept, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Jesus' words to Pilate, and John 18:36 are this. Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here." <clears throat> Past history and even current world events show us the folly and also the danger of combining church and state. Like the bumper sticker says, mix politics with religion and people will get burnt at the stake. When the church and government join forces, people will die. History has shown us that. It's very, very dangerous. The teaching of the New Testament concerning the church distinguishes it as separate from the kingdom of the world. Again, here is where we find much confusion in Christianity today. 
I like the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It would seem that Peter is reflecting back to that tribe of Levi, back there in Old Testament times, the royal priesthood, the the ones that were the little separate group that did not go to war, that took care of things of the church. He said, I think Peter, what I'm getting here, Peter says, you today are like them or should be like them, a special people. And we should be proclaiming the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is the body of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, his own special people, a brotherhood united by allegiance to his lordship. The church is directly under Christ so that Christ's wishes are the church delight. Christ's life and character is the standard by which we live our lives. As non-resistant New Covenant Christians who believe in the separation of church and state, what is our responsibility to the government of our land? Where do we stand today? I invite you to Romans 13, and I'd like to read 1 through 7. 2020, April, what is today? 26, 2020. Where do we stand as we think about this subject before us today? Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror of two good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's ministers to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually in this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, Taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Verse 1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so we take from this that men do not get elected to government office by mere chance. God appoints them and uses them to fulfill his will in the world. Government officials are ministers or servants to you for good. Proverbs 
21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. I believe, too, that we must recognize that just because government officials are appointed by God doesn't automatically make them godly individuals. Several times in the Old Testament scriptures, God refers to King Nebuchadnezzar as his servant. Not because he was a godly man or doing godly things, he was God's servant because God was using him to fulfill his purposes. And so it is today. God-appointed government officials are not necessarily godly men. I believe you know that. And that's why they do things and allow things that are totally against the Bible. So, what should our response be to our government today? God's ministers. Or what should our response be to the nonsense and the lack of common sense in the government today? I believe verse 7 shows us the Christian's responsibility to the government. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so here we have it. As non-resistant New Covenant Christians, it is our responsibility to have a respectful attitude of honor and strive to obey our government. And I say, God, help us in this, in this very day and age in which we live. What a challenge this has been for me. And so, in closing, today we have considered New Testament principles for non-resistance. The call to avenge not is a high calling. It's a call to be like Jesus. After a study such as this, we too may wonder what do Christians have to protect themselves from evil? And you know, that could be a subject in itself, but let me share one verse from 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and it is simply this, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Folks, we have weapons that are mighty. Non-resistance, I'm beginning to see, personally, I'm beginning to see, is an act of faith. We are trusting in a power to protect us that we cannot see. Let's bow our heads for prayer.